0: Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, luncheswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our uh, very special guest today, Mr. Michael Milken. Mike has been one of the uh, true American innovators. I mean, both as a philanthropist and as a financier. Um, Beginning on Wall Street in 1969, he revolutionized capital markets by expanding access to capital for thousands of companies and entrepreneurs. His philanthropic efforts uh, through the Milken Family Foundation paralleled his financial career where uh, he's been at the forefront of many diverse initiatives on education, public health, and uh, medical research. Mike is the chairman of the Milken Institute a nonprofit, nonpartisan economic think tank with a, uh, mission of expanding prosperity worldwide. He's also the founder and chairman of faster cures, uh, an organization working to build a patient cent- patient centric system where science is accelerated unnecessary barriers are overcome and life-saving treatments reach those that need them as rapidly as possible as well. Uh, Mike is the chairman of the Prostate Cancer Foundation, the world's largest private funder of prostate cancer research and the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. In March 2020, uh, Mike launched a series of podcasts titled Conversations with Mike Milken, uh, Leadership in a Time of Crisis, where he convened over 100 global leaders to help better understand and respond to the coronavirus crisis he and his wife, Lori, have been married since 1968. Wow, um, that may be his greatest achievement. Mm-hmm. And um, together they have three children, 10 grandchildren, and they are signatories of the Giving Pledge where they've committed the majority of their wealth to philanthropy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me such great pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest, Mike Milken. Mike, welcome to Lunches with Legends.
1: It's great to be with you. And I look forward to, to learning what all those books are in the library behind you.
0: <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, we'll get to that in the Q and A. Um, but let's, let's start at the beginning. So you grew up in a uh, suburb of Los Angeles in the forties and fifties, and it was naturally a very different time and place uh, from today. How would you describe your upbringing and um the influence that it had on your life and, and some of the things that you've done since.
1: I think uh, you'd have to go look at that TV show, Happy Days, that came out that reflect that period of time. It was growing up after World War II. Uh, I am the oldest part of the baby boomers, those born in 1946. And it was a dramatic change that occurred from our parents, often described by Tom Brokaw and others as the most caring generation that had lived through the depression, lived through World War II. Their safety, survival, in many ways was dependent on government. So the group born in 1946 um, were told and the rest of the baby boomers to 64 by their parents that they could be anything they wanted to be. They could change the world. One person could make a difference. And it was in that environment that I grew up in. It was a strong community. Los Angeles, pretty much everyone went to public school. So you had a long, a large breadth from people lower middle or poor to people that were upper uh, income or wealthy at the same school. From that standpoint. Uh, you, you went to school with people in the neighborhoods, I rode my bike to school, but community was a very important period of time uh, as the country recovered from the World War II and the United States at the time economically now was the most uh, important country in the world and launched programs. So I would say the 40s and the 50s symbolized that. We did have the Korean War, Um, but at my dinner table at night with my father, mother, and brother, and later my younger sister, uh, we discussed world events. You had to be prepared uh, to discuss any topic at any time. And as I reflect on the events that occurred uh, over this period of time, somewhat my life's path was set first by Sputnik in 1957 that went up and my decision to um, focus on science and mathematics, and it woke up the United States. Many people thought that Sputnik was the finest day and in a debate I had on national television, I guess with Putin many years ago, Sputnik, as he discussed it, um, Was representative of the superiority of the communist system of the Soviet Union. But uh, what it did is it woke up the United States. NASA was formed, DARPA was formed with the goal that the US would never be behind. It was cool to be a mathematician, a scientist. The country dramatically changed support for people in what we would call STEM today. And I was a student in that area and in. 57, wrote a letter to the president, letting him know I was ready to run the space program. Unfortunately, I never heard back, nor was I drafted. And so I would say, but focusing on data as a young age, my favorite book was The Almanac. I had a little flashlight under my pillow. And when I was supposed to be asleep, I, after the house quieted down, I could take out my almanac. Uh, and study statistics. Uh, I'd say the next major change that occurred was in 1965. Uh, I was home uh, from Berkeley, the free speech movement had occurred. Uh, Often when I go someplace, there's a commotion shortly thereafter. The 64 free speech movement was really the first year the baby boomers went to college. And it was centered around many things. Who publishes the school newspaper? What are the role of students in administration? And it was a peaceful uh, demonstration. But I came home, I was working during the summer in Los Angeles and something that became known as the Watts Riots mm-hmm. occurred August 11th, 1965. And Los Angeles was on fire. This was the city of dreams, the entertainment industry uh, I had spent considerable time in South Central L.A. growing up with my dad, and, and I couldn't understand why the city was on fire. It wasn't an eastern city where you had more segregation, et cetera. Uh, and eventually, I met a young African-American man that told me he would never get a loan to go into business. His father, who had great ideas, no one would ever give him capital and he would not be part of the American dream. So I went back to Berkeley, changed my major to business, and focused on this issue of credit and access to capital and the democratization of capital. I'd say the next major event that occurred uh, was in the early 70s. I had gone to Wall Street to change how money flowed. Uh, and this access to capital issue, and I work at both Wharton and Berkeley. And then my father, mother-in-law were diagnosed with advanced cancer, uh, and our children had some serious medical problems. And so you have a plan, life gets in the way, and now you're directed a considerable part of your efforts into a field that you never thought you would be in. And so as I reflect back on these events in history for me, the Watts riots and democratization of capital, the family, like so many others, that was affected by significant health and life-threatening health challenges. And I would say the last change is I made the decision in the mid to late 70s to move back to Los Angeles from New York, our department. I moved and offered everyone an opportunity to move with me. And I wanted our children, my wife, Lori and I, to know my father before he died. And we thought we had done everything, provided opportunities for everyone, housing, their religious uh, interests and preferences, jobs for spouses significant others time opportunities for relatives to come and visit and what we did not invest enough time in was education where their children would go to school busing started in 1978 in los angeles and around the united states uh, and it became a central issue uh, for the employees and their children and eventually was one of the main causes of the creation of the Milken Family Foundation mm-hmm. to institutionalize our support for healthcare and education. So today, 50, 60 years later, um, each of those has been the path I've traveled healthcare, education, and democratization of capital. Each, I can trace back to some event in my life, as most people would.
0: Right. and uh, So I want to, there's a lot here to unpack. I want to kind of take it one step at a time. But, you know, the, first of all, you mentioned this over the last 50 or 60 years. You know, when I originally was doing the research on you, I came across a number, which I just didn't believe. The fact that you've raised hundreds of billions of dollars for medical research and I've later confirmed that and probably why you know, Fortune Magazine named you the man who changed medicine. But you know, the interesting thing is you've taken your philanthropy, uh, a, a pretty active, engaged approach with your philanthropy where you've you know, worked to improve collaboration between researchers and in industry, academia, policymakers, philanthropists, et cetera. I guess the question that I would pose to you is through that entire journey as an active philanthropist, what would you identify as you know the most important lessons that you learned um and and perhaps even if you knew then what you know now you might have approached philanthropy a little differently but let's start with the most important lessons you've kind of learned from that experience
1: i'd say in the early years uh, because of my economic theories and trading i became independently wealthy uh, at a very young age in, in my late 20s and I'd say if I was to define another seminal moment in philanthropy, I had come home to discuss with my dad these economic theories I had developed at Berkeley, uh, capital structure at Wharton, and that during a what I consider the most important financial period post-World War II, 1973 to 6, 1973 to 77, uh, these proved out in what you might call in medical terms, an epidemic. Uh, Stock market went down 50%, interest rates doubled. Um, You put in credit controls where you're not allowed to borrow money and so on. Uh, I wanted to share this with my dad, but I couldn't uh, because he had a, a reoccurrence of his melanoma. And what I discovered is I could refinance a company, we could support a country and and their capital. But here, I could not move science fast enough to save my father's life. And I had the real first definition of a problem was something that could not be solved with money, no matter how many dollars you brought to bear. Science, in this case, melanoma from my father and other forms of cancer for my mother-in-law would not move fast enough to save their lives. And I could visit every cancer center at the time. And so I really reevaluated how you could accelerate science. And I'd say the lessons learned uh, are one young scientists, young investigators. In the beginning, we gave a great deal of money to people at the peak of their career. Uh, we discovered very little occurred after that point in time. But if we could identify those people in their early 30s who had spent 10 to 15 years in residency, internships, um, molecular biology, PhDs, MDs, fellowships, et cetera, who are starting out with their laboratories. And as I sat back and analyzed A lot of people win Nobel Prizes in the sciences when they're in their 60s or 70s. But for the most part, it's ideas they had in school, in college, Mm -hmm. graduate school, that were developed. And so the highest rate of return, I would say, we've had in our philanthropy over 50 years has been supporting people at this point in their career. And I would say the analogy would also go to our efforts with teachers or our efforts with entrepreneurs and so on. True. One of the lowest rate of returns we have ever had is giving people money at the peak of their career. Number one, True. they probably have the ability to raise money independent of us. So us giving them money didn't really make any difference. And two, as they've moved into different roles in their life, very small percent later receive funding for new ideas and new developments. So I would say that lesson learned. Number two, in the early years, we were very focused on financial support. Later years, we were very focused on changing the paradigm. So if you didn't share your information, uh, we didn't fund you. Mm -hmm. Now, many people would tell me that Uh, Their work is so important. Uh, Wait till the article comes out in Nature or Cell or the New England Journal of Medicine. uh, And then they'll share. We told them that their work was so important that they didn't need our money. Anyone would give them money. And generally within three to six months, everyone decided they could share. They could share their data. And we created this environment where they had... 10 to 15 minutes to share their data uh, and then open themselves to questions and feedback from large numbers of other scientists. I'd say that the other thing in philanthropy is the realization that there is no wealth in the hands of any individual today, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or the Gates Foundation plus Buffett compared to government. And so if you can redirect government funds, so spent five years preparing for something called the March, which occurred in 1998. And whereas every human life is priceless. And as you know, one of the great books tells us that if you save one life, you save the world. But in making an argument to government, you need to make an economic argument. So between the years of 93 and 98, I had spent five years with many others making the economic argument uh, that we needed increased funding for medical research, doubling the NIH budget, tripling the national cancer budget, increasing FDA, CDC, and so on thousands of people had worked on this unsuccessfully. So we eventually put on a march, brought a half a million people to Washington and around the country to medical centers. And within a short period of time, I think within less than a month, President Clinton signed into law the doubling of the NIH budget, the tripling of the NCI budget. And there's been an incremental, almost a half a trillion dollars now invested In bioscience. And many of the advances we have today were due to this investment that had been made uh, of what President Clinton signed into law, the Human Genome Project, and others spun out of this effort. So I think realizing government, can you redirect how government spends its money, how it invests its money? If you can, it's far larger than any philanthropic. Philanthropic funds in medical are about 3% of the money spent, government, industry, etc. But it is the venture capital. So it gets things started, but then you need industry and you need government to support it after that.
0: Right. So speaking of just getting something started, and again, we're going to turn momentarily to kind of the... Our more mundane world of, of Wall Street, Bay Street, finance, economics, etc., and investing. But before we do that, I just want to touch on one last thing, you know, because we can't really leave medical research without touching on uh, the coronavirus, and especially on um, since you've been so involved in pushing for accelerated vaccines and therapies, could you share with us a little bit about your involvement there, and and maybe even um, the link between your historic focus on cancer research and and the virus?
1: Okay, so I was in Johannesburg. I had, the Milken Institute puts on about 250 events around the world physically. The last one kind of was in Johannesburg in February, even though we did get permission from Singapore to put on our Asia conference on for about 10% of the attendees, about 200 people uh, a month or so ago. Uh, And I was flying home and you could see what was about to occur in the world. This pandemic spreading throughout the entire world was in front of us. And so to link to what you've said, um, Jonathan Simons, who runs the Prostate Cancer Foundation, but is with me a founder of the Melanoma Research, uh, Faster Cures and others, and headed the cancer center in Atlanta that he was the first head of before he joined us. Uh, I asked Jonathan to lead the effort in in looking at everything that ever had worked in cancer that might be applied in COVID-19. And what in cancer research, one of the main developments in the last 10 to 15 years that we've been funding since 94 and five has been immunology to energize your own immune system. Jim Allison won a Nobel prize a couple years ago for this, right. and so when you energize your immune system, there's three reasons you got cancer. One, your immune system had been weakened. Uh, inflammation, a number one factor. Uh, Number two, the cancer was disguised. If you were a Star Trek fan, like a Klingon warship, it was cloaked and it didn't read it. Or three, it was turned off or not turned on. Jim worked on the turning on of your immune system. And when you turn it on, often you overstimulate it and you get that cytokine storm that we were reading about that goes to your lungs and then led to the death of so many people. But in order for a cancer drug to be successful, it had to deal with this cytokine storm. And so I asked him to lead the efforts and we launched clinical trials. And we discovered when we looked at Italy that only four or five men were who were on ADT drugs androgen deprivation therapy used in prostate cancer for decades died uh, who were older. And it appeared that by shutting down testosterone, you prevented the creation of a protein called TEMPRS2, which was needed in order for this virus to get in your lungs. So men on this androgen deprivation therapy which is a generic today and widely used, you could potentially substantially reduce. But other treatments, Comistat that have been used in in Japan, et cetera, Jonathan led. So that's your link. Mm -hmm. The other element is, as I reflected on 50 years, what did we need to do? So the first thing we did is we redirected with all the 10 centers in the Milken Institute to work on COVID. If you were Mike Piavar running the Center for Financial Markets, your job was to create financial safety nets with the governments around the world as to what could prevent a complete meltdown of the economies at this time. Losing, we figured the US, it was costing a minimum of $1 trillion a month, therefore ramping up investments in BARDA building manufacturing before you knew it worked, making millions of doses of a vaccine antiviral antibody before you know it works. So you shifted the risk, but the cost to society and the human cost was so great Mm -hmm. that you needed to accelerate. And we launched something called the tracker. And you can go to the institute.org or fastercures.org. And we have been monitoring what's now about 540 vaccines, antivirals, uh, antibodies, uh, and where they are in the development, talking to them what whether they need capital, financial capital to accelerate. What does it mean for Regeneron to shut down their plant in the United States making uh, a current drug that they provide to people so that they could be prepared to prepare their antiviral drug for COVID. And it takes six months to convert over. So the 200,000 doses that you were getting of this antiviral to prevent it from going to your lungs today uh, are available because they made the decision to shut down production and shift it to Europe. Mm-hmm. Roach made the decision to shut down production in one of their plants. Uh, And now they're making 200,000 of the Regeneron antivirals. Collaboration, one of the key failures that we discovered in the, particularly in the 70s and 80s, you now have companies collaborating, partnering. We read that Gilead opened up their patent library allowed generic manufacturers in India or Pakistan to make their drugs without royalties. And so fierce competitors uh, now were partnering uh, to produce, change production levels. And so the lessons learned were it might not work, but are you gonna spend one to two years building a plant or changing production if it did the costs to society are too high. Right. Wow. From that standpoint. So, all these have been applied today. Mm-hmm. The distribution, which we've shifted to, has been in many ways disappointing. Uh, major medical centers, uh, many of them have been more concerned that someone jumped the line than getting them all out. And you've seen now more and more countries, more states in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada, provinces, are gonna make it simplified. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone on an audience is old enough to have gone to Disneyland when you had an A, B, C, D, and E ticket. All these different tickets you had to rip out and get for the rides. Well, it's a lot easier when you announce anybody over 65 can get the vaccine. It's not confusing. Or anyone working in the medical area or anyone in a nursing home. So you've broadened this distribution. But this is you know, a miracle of science. And the advancements in technology today, the idea that you can find a cure for a life-threatening disease that did not exist in the person's lifetime is something that you could not have hoped for right you know 50 years ago
0: yeah no I, kudos first of all incredible the work that uh that you've done on this front and and hope
1: that uh and these do, you know, little books that you held up and they yeah. they get volume one and two yeah <laughs> <They have laughs> many <good>. purposes one <laughs> Uh, the people, Francis Collins, who runs the NIH, was the first. We wanted everyone in the world to know what Francis Collins was doing, not just what I was doing or what I was trying to encourage him to do. Right. Uh, and so the first one is maybe half people are involved somewhat in medical care, et cetera. The second one, was much more involved in what was going on in society. So 30% of the people in volume two are women, Mm -hmm. 20% are African-Americans, whether they're in Canada, the United States, or in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Uh, With the challenges of what was happening, um, I reached out to the heads of the three most three of the five most valuable companies in the world to show what they were doing how they were deploying their capital how you you could use their technology we went to three of the five most valuable financial institutions in the world to show how they were providing access to capital to everyone and how they might engage um, you had a a chance to interview Robert Smith not too long ago Mm -hmm. but with Robert on our Center for Financial Markets and we worked on how are we going to get financial capital into minority financial institutions, small institutions which has now been passed in this latest bill. How are we going to deal with financial deserts? How are we going to deal with food deserts and food security how are we going to deal with health deserts where there isn't a medical clinic in a neighborhood? So each one of these, whether it was Robert and financial or someone else, we interviewed with the idea that anyone could listen. Anyone could see what their strategy and anyone maybe could follow up if they had a better idea.
0: So let me let me change the, the topic. I mean, in a, you know, but use that as a springboard to. Um, uh, Towards finance and, and towards the opportunities that you're seeing. And, and let me just frame it this way. You know, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about philanthropy, and but we also I want to talk a little bit about your influence as a financier. Um, and you know, when you and your colleagues at Drexel, I mean, you financed much of the early growth in industries, cable, cellular, home building, hospitality. And, you know, by virtue of expanding all this capital for thousands of smaller companies, you've also helped create millions of jobs. And you know what you're describing right now is kind of some innovations happening in Wall Street. But if you think about the Wall Street you came into in 1969 and the Wall Street of today, what are some of the fundamental differences that you're seeing? And how do those differences translate into risks uh, or opportunities for investors today?
1: Uh, the world that I came into um, basically believed in a- uh, high-grade credit, um, and stocks. And I joined a firm that was the leading research firm uh, to solve the delivery of securities problems. In the late 1960s, you had many of the firms failing because you had physical delivery. And I had majored in and operations research, uh, information systems, and finance. And my understanding with them is I would help work on solving the delivery of the certificate problem, which eventually became a central depository. In exchange, they would publish my research from Wharton. And that world, there was maybe 400 companies, 500 companies that were investment grade and 10 million that weren't and they were all focused on providing capital. And there was maybe only 10 institutions that played a significant role of who had access to capital. And so I went to Wall Street to try to democratize this effort. That has occurred. Uh, There was a lot that occurred in 1970s particularly, uh, the success of these theories that made it happen. And By the mid 1980s, you see a total opening up of financial markets. And if you look at job creation, in the 30 years from 1970 to 2000, investment grade companies created minus 4 million jobs. And more than 62 million jobs were created in the private sector by non investment grade companies. But when you look at the fifth most valuable company today in the world, Tesla, Uh, It's not investment grade that might make investment grade. Uh, They have a couple billion in debt and 800 billion in market cap. It's hard to understand. Uh, But mostly companies of the future are non-investment grade. CrowdStrike, uh, leading company in the cybersecurity area, has a market cap of 50 billion. It's non-investment grade also. And so what all cellular, all mobile, all these different industries... uh, and so the opportunity I had was really, an, to me, an unbelievable opportunity in the sense that I could mirror access to capital to people with ability. And I had scribbled this formula down in '65 that prosperity, P, uh, Financial technology served as a multiplier on the world's greatest asset, human capital, second most important asset, social capital, and then real assets, which you find in a balance sheet. And except for professional sports, the people aren't on balance sheets. And Bill McGowan, at one point when I first met him, I think he had 30 or 50 employees at MCI. AT&T had a $1.4 but providing capital to Bill was not really risky. He had more ability, more vision than others, or John Malone or Ted Turner or Steve Ross or hundreds of others. And so once you saw the marrying of access to capital, which by 1983 reopened the markets, to people with ability, the world changed. Now, today there's More than a hundred financial companies that are led or headed by people that work for me uh, or work with me. And so the knowledge of this has spread around the world in these markets. The world, the financial markets are much more sophisticated today, much more data-driven than they were when I went in 1969. You had people that looked at stocks and didn't think I even what the rating was. And one of the things I used to change people's opinion was most of the time, if you looked at their sell list, the companies recommended were investment grade. So if you looked at what they were suggesting that is not the future, and if you looked at their buy list of what the companies were the future, they were not investment grade and they never bothered to look at the debt of these companies, so today hundreds of different kinds or thousands of different kinds of securities have been created uh, the failure of the nifty 50 in the 1970s investing uh, created the mutual fund industry and explosion and so today tens of thousands of financial institutions are making the decision on who has access to capital and it's a much different world You also have had the growth of an industry, particularly the software industry, that generates enormous free cash flow. And so when you look at a company like Amazon, or Google, or Facebook, for example, that do not pay dividends to their shareholders, they accumulate enormous liquidity. And in many ways, they have become venture capitalists and investors today themselves. So many of the new technologies or entrepreneurs themselves are providing the capital to them to start their businesses, test out new ideas from that standpoint. I think net of debt today, Google would have the greatest cash, whereas Apple has the most cash. They have a lot of debt Google probably has the most net cash of any company in the world. So the markets are much more sophisticated. And so you see when people telling you the world's coming to an end, in 1974, we were buying debt for its coupon. I never thought again in my lifetime you would have that opportunity. In 08, 09, you had that opportunity again. But as people told you in this last go round that never really occurred. And the distressed funds and everyone waiting to buy distress it's like waiting for Godot. If they didn't step in, they never bought from that standpoint. And the sophistication of instruments today, one of the things that we focused on was the idea that how you finance a business or how you finance an industry varies depending on the risk in that industry or that business. And so today, you have all these different forms of instruments. Some companies need to be financed primarily with equity. Others can have larger percentage of debt. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so, Mike, just to, if I could actually ask you a personal question, particularly because virtually all of the participants, you know, online are, are active investors and family office principals. I think. Be, everybody would be quite interested in learning how you are investing your own money or your own family office as investing today. And and what do those allocations say of your personal values or your beliefs about the future?
1: Well, first, from a conflict standpoint, um, my strong belief in life sciences, if I wanted to link simply for you, the investing and life sciences, more than 50% of all economic growth in the last 200 years can be traced to advances in public health and medical research. Um, Most people don't reflect on the fact, if I just took the United States, for example, that one in five people in the United States died before their fifth birthday in 1900. Today, by the time 20% of the people pass away, you're in the low to mid 60s, 62, 63, 64. In 1900, uh, life expectancy on planet Earth was 31. That was average. Today, we're now approaching, you know, in the 70 area. Probably the greatest achievement of humankind has been this extension of life, not only the extension of life, but the improvement of the quality of life too, over the last 120 years. In the first four, uh, let's let let's say probably the first, um, trying to think how many million years, but let's say 4 million years of evolution, mm-hmm. you extended average life expectancy by about 11 years. In the last 120, you've extended it by 40 some odd years, and who knows what the future brings. So we have been very focused on life sciences. Now, in order not to have a conflict with our medical foundations and others, we might invest and contribute the shares to our foundations uh, so that we don't personally benefit. But in many cases, uh, our medical foundations have put up the money, but don't take any equity because our goal is to accelerate science. And I would say, if I looked at what's the Prostate Cancer Foundation, they've had 13 or 14 drugs approved, probably worth more than hundred billion collectively. We, our benefit was that millions of people are alive. The death rates dropped by 52%. And we elected not to participate in form of equity. Now I can't sit on a trading desk today and I'm assuming many of the people listening to our interview today can't. So I've been focused on investments that are a little longer term uh, where I, I don't look at them on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Uh, the creation of specs. And the growth of SPACs over the last few years but particularly last year has created a unique opportunity for investors and we have been one of the major investors in this area in our family office and why have we well if i buy a u.s treasury bill i get about five basis points after tax Um, so therefore whether i get zero or five doesn't really make much difference i can buy a SPAC and I'm backed by the same treasury bills. That if they have warrants attached and we sell the warrants, then instead of five basis points, I might be able to get 2% on on two-year paper. So come the worst thing that can happen to me is I get two. The best is that I get a significant rate of return and that they buy a great company and I elect to roll forward. There are a lot of challenges and, uh, in the world today. There's challenge to our free enterprise system. Is it meeting the needs of the people? You know, my father drilled into me when I was eight years old that if there aren't opportunities for everyone, if everyone does not feel they have a chance, then there might not be opportunities for his grandchildren. Right. Therefore, the challenges we're seeing When 50% of people under 30 think socialism or communism might be better, it's a wake-up call. And are we meeting the needs of the citizens? Uh, And one of the challenges we have is that many people have pension funds, are investing in private equity or venture capital, but they don't necessarily know it or know the names of the organizations that they're pension funds are invested in or uh, their foundations are invested in because they've given the money to someone else to manage. And we feel it's exceedingly important today that the public once again feels part of the system and is benefiting from the system today. The United States um, has the highest percentage, this is a study that Credit Suisse puts out, the highest percentage of its population that are millionaires at about 6.5% to 7%. This is the same as Australia of any country that has more than 20 million people. Switzerland or Singapore would have a higher percentage, but much lower population. But the United States also has among all developed countries, among the highest percentage of its citizens, 28 to 30% who have a net worth under $10,000. So this enormous disparity that's occurred. And when you read these statistics that 40, 50% of the population could not come up with $400 without going to a pawnbroker, borrowing against their future salary, going to family to meet a medical emergency, they're only one medical emergency away from financial disaster occurring. And so the challenges to this is an area that we are focused on investing in both from a philanthropic standpoint and from our family office. How can we create opportunities for people to get access to capital to pursue their dreams, or at least try? How can we provide educational opportunities for young people so that they have the knowledge that they can participate in a knowledge society? And so this is one of the key elements behind both our investment strategy and our philanthropic strategy.
0: Yeah, so could I double click on that a little bit? I um, particularly, you know, I recall um, a number of years ago, you were giving a talk on the impact of changing demographics. And I think at the time you quoted the uh, French philosopher, Auguste Comte saying, you know, demography is destiny. Is, is that still, is that concept still applicable today? And if you're, you know, looking into the future, and you're making investment decisions that deal with demographic issues. Um, what current trends like are you paying attention to? What industries are you paying to? How are you expressing that belief?
1: Well, I believe it is truer than ever. Um, you know, as we look at China today, if you went to medical school in China 30 years ago, you never studied diabetes. Obesity was not an issue. Now, China has the most people with diabetes in the world, 40% of their population's obese. They've changed from a, a plant-based diet to more of a Western diet. There's gone from zero to 5,000, Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, et cetera, and China. And they will, at the current rate, might have more people with diabetes than live in the United States. Hmm. So they have a challenge. Yes, they've had a much higher savings rate, but they haven't built you know, Medicaid systems to support people as they get older. Uh, if you look at the world today, uh, China is aging as fast or faster as almost any country in the history of the world. Korea also. So where As median age in China is a little bit below the United States, at one point, it'll be substantially older than the United States. Um, Demographics, the United Nations and our work at the Institute has projected that almost the entire growth in the world's population, net in the balance of this century, will be in Sub-Saharan Africa, an increase of 3 billion people well, what are the jobs? What are the opportunities? 50 million people came from Europe to the United States in the 1800s for for religious freedom, opportunity, food, and all the other challenge, no airplanes, risky travel, 50 million. What happens if one or two billion people are on the move if you don't create opportunities in those areas? And so, We've been very focused on a philanthropic area with setting up the scholarship program with the IFC International Finance Corp and our center for one of our 10 centers, our Center for Global Market Development, in training uh, future leaders, financial leaders, bringing them to the United States for nine months to go to school and internships uh, in their 30s. And they agreeing to work for their government optimistic, patriotic, etc., cetera, and be counterparties for economic development. Uh, investing in entrepreneurs or creating op- on those companies in these emerging markets to create jobs. Nigeria, whose population is 60% of the US, uh, has twice as many children born in 2019 as the United States. So the United States has the lowest recorded birth rate in the history of the United States and far less children born even though the population is substantially larger than were born in the 19 late 1940s early 1950s. So these demographics, the US will become a Latin American Asian country by demographics. So If you wanted to sell residential real estate in California and you didn't notice Smith and Jones were no longer the number one surname. The top 10 surnames of people that buy homes in the state of California are all Latin American, Hispanic surnames or Asian surnames. And so looking at the United States and wondering what's gonna happen and how it's gonna change, is the realization that in a number of states, less than 25% of the young children are of European ancestry. So you might think you have a common heritage, but at some point in this century, the history of Asia and the history of Latin America will play a much larger role as they rewrite the textbooks in the United States. I remember it was 1979, Uh, gold had gone to 800 an ounce, silver had gone to $50 an ounce. There was more volatility in U.S. government bonds in one day than the entire decade of the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I had called a number of my friends in Toronto and Vancouver and told them that, you know, it looks like natural resources here, access to water, So I'm thinking of, you know, moving capital out of the United States and recommending to the hundreds or thousands of companies that we should be invested in Canada, who has abundance of natural resources and other things. And they told me that's great because they're thinking of moving their capital out of Canada, into the United States so we could just do a trade uh, right out yeah. on the phone. Um, but they were very focused on government leadership at the time, government policies at the time. And so for the last eight years, we've been building the center for the American dream in Washington, DC with a small a that has these four pillars that has dominated my life that we believe underlines the american dream financial inclusion the educator and education uh, medical research and public health and the entrepreneur and innovation to serve as a symbol of stories and telling stories of hope but also recognizing so we're calling it the center for advancing this dream because we recognize that where you're born might determine your upward mobility, whether you have access to capital might determine your upward mobility.
0: Look, Mike, I want to I double click on again, come back to something you said earlier, and you know, so much of what you're doing is you know investing, and whether it's young researchers, whether it's young entrepreneurs, whether it's future political leaders, you know, and again, this investing in talent, as it were. And it, it struck me, and you said this earlier in the conversation, um, that so many of your colleagues and, you know, people that worked with you and for you at Drexel are now running, uh, you know, sort of the top financial institutions around the world. And, and again, it's 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 glaring. I mean, you think about industry legends today, like Steven Feinberg at Cerberus, Anthony Ressler, Aries, Leon Black, Apollo, Josh Friedman, Ken Moellis, I could go on and on. You know, what... What was in the Wheaties at Drexel Burnham? Like, how did you manage to cultivate uh, so much talent in the firm during your tenure? And, and particularly as investors think about asset classes where there's this wide dispersion of returns, talent is, is everything. Um, so maybe you could kind of share your thoughts before we probably only have time for one more question thereafter on, on uh, how, how you cultivated that talent uh, within Drexel and continue I to think.
1: I searched for people that wanted to be on a mission and believed we were doing something, whether there was very few people that believed in the mobile or cellular industry or the cable industry, Um, but the idea of matching access to capital to people. If you measure human potential or capital, it's measured in hundreds of trillions of dollars, it dwarfs. Just two things happen In the mid to late 1990s, Steve Jobs returned to Apple, and Morita, who was the Steve Jobs of his day at Sona, was in declining health and left Sony. So it took 20 Apples in 1997 to make one Sony. Today, I haven't checked, but my guess is it takes 20 Sonys to make one Apple. I mean, so as an investor, a 400 to 1 change with people that aren't on the balance sheet themselves Mm -hmm. and realizing today that every industry every industry is going to be affected by technology manufacturing has only begun to change as to what 3d printers we'll be able to print stuff and the software that allows you the program to print it when you think of an apple tree A seed is programmed when you give it water and energy and light to go from seed to an apple tree. Just think of that with the software that might be written in the future. So to me, it's always the people. People talk about great companies. It was really the people at the company that made them great. And there's no guarantee that company will be great in the future. Uh, if I was to give you an example, GE. Now, GE was considered, if you wanted to be a manager, you'd go to GE. They, you would learn to be a manager more than any other con- company in the world, but they hired from within. And then, when the private equity industry grew up in 1970, if GE had a great manager and they narrowed it down to 16 future leaders, Well, you would offer those 16 people equity, more equity than they'll ever get a GE, more potential for wealth creation, and a CEO job today, not a one in 16 chance. And so I had mentioned to Jeff Emmel that he might be the last, that when they pick their 16 or their final five, they are picking from a group of people that were those that weren't picked by others. And so... They never fully adjusted to what happened with private equity and the chance for letting people become a CEO much earlier in their career with a wealth path and a freedom path. And so I think what I searched for was people that uh, had the intellect, but wanted to be on a mission of job creation, funding new industries, and the democratization of capital. That Knowledge every morning, uh, I imparted with new securities, new structures, etc. And so they've taken it to levels. You know, you, you often hear a person tell you, "I taught that person everything they know." If I pick, say, Mark Rowan at Apollo, well, I might have taught him everything he knew in the '80s, '90s. I still stay in touch, but he's gone on. And he's taught me a few things over the years, too. And so there's this famous you know, saying also in this book, the Old Testament, that a teacher often learns more from his students uh, than the students learn from the teacher. And I have tried to see the world through new eyes through their eyes. And I would say every morning, we might do what my thoughts were, but I learned by their questioning. And mm-hmm. they learned by my questioning from that standpoint. And that's carried forward today, 30, 40 years later.
0: Mike, that was that was fantastic. I mean, we're regrettably all out of time. I have another 20 questions I wish we had gotten to, but um, really thank you for sharing your incredible insights with us and I really appreciate your generosity with your time, your treasure, your wisdom, your ingenuity. And and certainly hope that we can do it again soon. Um,
1: If any of your viewers have questions that we didn't get to, if you would email me too, we'll we'll try to give them an answer for them.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting luncheswithlegends.com. Finally, to get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.